that video was a video made for the Transportation Security Administration, and it was obviously distributed more widely than that. It's a tough day, isn't it, to remember 20 years ago? I think most of us, like I said, remember exactly where we were uh, at, at, at that time when when the towers fell. I was. I've probably told you the story a million times before, but Brooke and I had just moved to Iowa for her internship, and I was working as a security guard for Rockwell Collins. And so I didn't have to work until the afternoon. I'd gotten up and was getting ready, and I, I turned on the TV, and it was just when the, the first plane hit. And I remember thinking, oh, I haven't seen this movie before. I wonder, wonder what this is. And then I realized I was watching CNN. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. The thing to keep in our hearts and our minds when we think about tragedies like this is that it is an opportunity for us to appreciate what we have. It is an opportunity for us to appreciate the people in our lives, that we sit here in comfort, we sit here in safety, and that there's people that don't. There are times when people have suffered loss. There are times when people have suffered great tragedy. And so it reminds us to cherish what we have, to cherish the opportunities that we have, and to not let them go to waste. And that actually ties in greatly with what we're going to talk about today. So we're in John chapter 6, but we're not going to go there right away. Our theme has been faith. It's been faith for the, the last few weeks, and we're going to continue in that faith. And our, our message for today, we're actually going to read a sermon from Jesus. And if I were you, would be like, how about we just do that instead of listening to you ramble on? And you would be 100% correct that it would be his words that are much better than mine. But our theme is faith. And Jesus says that belief is the key to a relationship with him and to eternal life with him. And I would ask you to pay attention to this first part because we're going to contrast it with the second part. It's going to lay in stark contrast to the second part of the message. If we were to flip in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. That's at the very beginning of the, the hall of faith, when we get these beautiful portraits of these men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'm going to expound on this a little bit in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Put an underline or highlight verse 13. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. It says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. We would, like I say, underline verse 13, just bookmark it for later. But we want to emphasize that first part. If you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that, uh, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
The other part we want to think about there is that Jesus preaches. In a little bit, we're going to read a sermon that Jesus spoke to some folks at a synagogue in, in Capernaum. And this is what Jesus says about preaching, about spreading the gospel. We've been talking about missions. We've been talking about evangelism. Tom just did a great job building on our evangelism. We're going to continue to talk about that. But here is Jesus preaching, his, his call to preach. This is in Luke chapter 4, and he's actually quoting from Isaiah here. It's verses 18 through 21. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. Remember, he's reading from Isaiah. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus went throughout Israel, Samaria, and Judah doing those three things. Healing, casting out demons, preaching, teaching, and praying. The Gospels record several of Jesus' sermons. And it's a good idea to study them. Those are the words of God. It's a good idea to study them. Remember, our theme is is faith. So this brings us to our first application for today. If we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That word devoted, I pulled up the the Merriam-Webster online dictionary. The definition, this is the 4B, says, the fact or state of being ardently dedicated and loyal. Synonyms are fidelity, allegiance, fealty, loyalty, and piety. A Christian is a devoted follower of Christ. Not a casual follower, not a fan, not an attendee, but devoted. And what are we devoted to? Well, first of all, to Christ. But we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So here we are in starting our second month in the sixth chapter of John. The reason for that is this very reason. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching. However, we should broaden this out, take it more broadly. If we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, who is up here really doesn't matter. And I mean that. Who is up here really does not matter. If the word has supremacy in our lives, It is the time in the Word that we cherish. It's the opportunity that we spend in the Word that we cherish. I've probably told you before that when when Brooke and I got married, I was not a baseball fan. I am now. I am a baseball fan now. But she's a a softball player, and she loves sports. But here's the thing, and the way I want to draw the parallel is that I wasn't a baseball fan, but you know what I was a fan of? Of her. So, I learned to love baseball. Why? Because I wanted to spend time with her. It didn't matter what we were doing. I don't care. We'd be watching baseball. We'd be watching Sports Center. We could have gone to a cooking show. We could have, you know, sat around and did absolutely nothing. What mattered was the time that we had together. That's what I want to think about when we think about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's that kind of thing. It doesn't, everything else doesn't matter the circumstance, where we are, when we are, when we're gathering, what it is else that's going on, right? We could be in a ditch somewhere. It's time in the Word. We think about our, our worship, and we have worship time together. Everything else can fall away. We could be anywhere. 
We could be sitting on a bus. We could be sitting on a plane. We could be out working in a field. It doesn't matter. It's the time in worship that's the important time. Think about our fellowship, our, our time that we have together as a family. We can do anything. We can go anywhere. We choose to come here. We can be any place. We choose to come here. But that fellowship, that time that we have together, that's the time that we choose to be with our family, and that's what matters. That's what we are devoted to. That's what it says the early followers were devoted to. Not casual about, not, yeah, we should, not, you know, yeah, when we have an opportunity, not, well, you know, if I get around to it or if I don't have anything better to do. They were devoted to it, saying no. Just like third date kind of, you know, I want to. Devoted to it. You betcha I'm going to be there. You betcha. I'm going to be early. I'm going to dress nice. Why? Because I'm devoted to it. Right? That's what the kind of energy that, that they're giving us this, uh, this, this message of, this, this picture of. So I think about missionaries in North Africa, in the Middle East, and in China. Those missionaries that we've talked about, they've memorized the Bible one page at a time. Missionaries who, when they get together, they spend day and night together pouring over the Word of God, knowing that if they get caught, it's prison and probably death. We should all have that level of devotion. Devotion to the Word, devotion to fellowship, not as a convenience, not as a tolerance, but as a choice. We choose to be dedicated to each other. Remember those words, fidelity and allegiance and fealty and loyalty and piety. Tease these out in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. This is the greatest commandment. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 7, it says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Fellowship. Devoted to each other. Devoted to the breaking of bread. We just had communion a couple weeks ago, and it's coming up again. But pause for a minute. Think about what communion means to you. Do you take the time each time to proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes? Is communion a time of sacred worship for you? If not, hey, guess what? We go out up this morning. We have an opportunity today to renew our spirit, to approach communion with fresh eyes and a broken heart. The last one is, is prayer. Are we devoted to prayer time? Is it like a date? Do we look forward to our time in prayer? Like you enjoy your time with your spouse or with your favorite hobby. If not, again, it's a beautiful day outside. Today is a great day. Today is a good day to repent, to change course, to approach prayer with an attitude of devotion, to overall Look at the world with new eyes to see the gospel in the everyday, to lift up our lives in worship. I put the serenity prayer in here. It's just beautiful. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. And I hope the whole goal for that is to change your attitude a little bit as we head into our verse for today. And again, hold on to it because the contrast is in the second part. Now, our verse for today is a sermon. It's a long passage. But I want to take the sermon as John wrote it. And John, he does this. He emphasizes Jesus as the Word. If you were to flip over to John 1.1, what does it say? It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? That's what it says. John is emphasizing that. If we want to compare, if just open up your Bibles to chapter 6, look at how he emphasizes things. There's a couple miracles right here in chapter 6. Feeding of 5,000 people, right? Right there, walking on water. The feeding of 5,000 people got seven verses. Walking on water got five verses. If you flip back to chapter 5, healing a paralyzed man got seven verses. This sermon gets 34 verses. Which one do you think John was trying to emphasize? I put these in your message map, but if you want to do a survey of some, this is not comprehensive by any means, but here's some list of, of some of the sermons that you can read in your Bible. You have Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You have Matthew 13, or the Kingdom Parables, which apply strongly to the second half today, by the way, if you wanted to follow up. Matthew chapter 18, having childlike faith. Matthew 24 and 25, chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. We just read a few weeks ago, John 5, 19 through 47, where Jesus talked about equality with God. And eventually, as we move forward, we'll get into John chapters 14 through 17, where we have the upper room discourse. This sermon that we're going to read today is called the Bread of Life Discourse. And the chapter ends in verses 60 through 70 with the effects, the aftermath of this sermon. So with that, with our renewed attitude, with our renewed heart, Let's open our Bibles and read John chapter 6, verses 25 through 59. I know it's a long one, but we want to read this sermon. It says, When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. When they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, Always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none 
of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks up to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Amen. What's funny, I mean, this is the funny thing, is that most of us who are Christians, who have been Christians for a while, the thing that jumps out at us is not the bread. We get the bread part pretty easily. Jesus is the bread. The part that jumps out at us is in verse 44. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up the last day. We skip over the bread part. Even though bread is written 15 times in that verse. It's bread, 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 bread. We talked about bread the last couple of weeks. Jesus says, I am the bread, and unless you eat of me, you will not live. You will not be with the Father. But this one, that that verse 44, is the one that that we kind of sticks in our teeth. Because this is the one, literally, the church has split. We've had denominational splits many times over this very issue. It's a mystery that we're all trying to work out as we become Christians, as we try and work through, because we're we're talking about salvation. We're talking about eternal life. We talk about the process of how someone comes to God. We want to know how it works. We want to know how this happens. So, you know, think about Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley. All of them, they cry out to us as church fathers, trying to give us insight into this passage. And now would be the exact perfect time for me to drag out the slides with the five points of Calvinism, the tulip, and to compare them to Arminianism. And those are fun conversations. It's fun to learn and to discuss. And it really is a peek under the hood of the eternal. It's a look inside the clockwork of salvation to see how it ticks. And we ask questions because it it is a big deal. Can everyone be saved? That's the question we want to know is, can everyone be saved? Is everyone, every human being, called to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And 
we're going to just briefly touch on it. And then we can follow up further in Bible study if we want to. But overall of that, we talked about this last week, put David Platt's saying over this, God is sovereign, man is responsible. Because the result of that is a message of hope. And many of us have people that we care about who are not saved, who do not have faith. And that's really where this rubs, is when we have somebody in our lives, in our family, in our, where we know that they don't have a relationship with Christ. Because that's what we're really scared about if we get to the end of it. When we get to the end of our rope, that's really why this rubs us. Because we want to know, is the person I know, is the person I care about, what about all the innocent people? We just watched the towers fall. What about those 3,000, 4,000 people? Did they know God? Are they in heaven celebrating right now? When we were worshiping this morning, did they get to lift up their voices? That's what, what rubs us, right? There's 6 billion people on the planet. How many of them are going to heaven? That's, that's the rub. That's what we want to know about. If we go over to, to John chapter 10, because it's the hard part of this lesson. We're going to go there several times, but the hard part about this is that not everyone is of God. So let's go to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. It's where Jesus illustrates this. It says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So get the picture. Jesus is the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. If you do not hear his voice and do not follow him, you are not his sheep. See, there's two ways we can look at John 6, 44. Either God does not call everyone or not everyone answers the call. So how are we saved? I'll put it up here. By faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Belief in Christ is the way to salvation. You must have faith. In Christ alone. Christ is the only Messiah, the Redeemer, the propitiation for our sins. John Piper says, When we get to heaven, we will find there are many people who will go to hell and will deserve it. 
We deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve judgment. God is just. He is not cruel or sadistic or mean. He is just. And his justice demands punishment for sin. And remember, God is always in your moment of sin. You have moved on. Maybe it was hours ago, days ago, weeks ago, years ago. To God, you are sinning right now because he is omnipresent everywhere all the time. Your sin, my sin, is ever before him. If we go to Psalm 51, it teases this out. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Because here's the thing, is that we will also find when we get to heaven that there are many people who go to heaven and do not deserve it. In fact, all of them. Jesus took our place. He drank the full measure, the full cup of God's wrath. God's wrath was poured out on him instead of us. That is God's grace. Through grace alone. You could do nothing to redeem yourself. You could not earn your way, make yourself clean, buy yourself back, bring yourself back from the dead. It is entirely the work of Christ. By faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. But, not everyone is saved. Earlier in this verse and at the end of the chapter, chapter, people leave Jesus in droves. So one of two things must be true. Either God does not call everyone or not everyone answers the call. And that is the wedge between the Calvinist and the Arminian. Verse 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Verse 37 says, All those the Father gives me. That leads us to believe in the first thing, that God must not call everyone. But 2 Peter 3.9 gives us the opposite argument. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, day, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. So there you have it. You have both sides. Verse 37, right? And you have verse 44, and then you have 2 Peter 3, 9. You have both sides. You have the Calvinist side and the Arminian side. And clearly, choice and free will have something to do with it. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, believe, you must believe. He wouldn't be begging, pleading. He wouldn't be giving this sermon. If we were just drones, if we were just robots, some saved, some unsaved, he would just be wasting his time, and God does not waste his time. So clearly, free will and choice have something to do with it. But regardless of where you land, our hope is the same. God is sovereign. Nothing is out of his hands. 
and man is responsible. We are not remote-controlled drones on some predetermined course. And when we stand before the throne, we will stand before a just God. And if we are found guilty, it will be entirely our responsible. And if Jesus steps forward and says, no, this one is mine, that is entirely God's grace. So you heard the sermon. You heard Jesus talk. Talk about how he is the bread, how he is the bread of life, how you must eat of his flesh, how you must drink of his blood. What do you think? What's your reaction to that? What do you think about it? The crowd has a strange reaction. But I would say that it's one that we have too, all the time to the scripture. It's true in, in the scripture and it's true today. It's one that we do and one that everyone does around us right now. See, people are attracted by the miracles. They're attracted by the signs. They're attracted by the healing. Those things people like and they want more of. When Jesus teaches, that is when they leave in droves. So what is your response? Because the crowd, at first they grumble. That's what it says. It says the crowd starts grumbling. Then they argue, and then they leave. I told you we're going to contrast this from earlier, right? Because we need to be devoted to Scripture, devoted to fellowship, devoted to breaking bread, devoted to prayer, right? But we see this all the time. When the truth of the gospel is, is preached, especially in our world right now, what happens? Immediately the grumbling starts. Ah, you can't say that. You can't say that about marriage. You can't say that about, about you know, being nice to each other. You can't say that about how you treat people. You can't say that. You can't say, you know, God created. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Go to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will be, bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I want to grumble against that one. As soon as the scripture says something that we don't like, that we disagree with, that is a hard saying, that means that we must confront or, or challenge the way that we believe, then the grumbling starts. That's what happens with these folks. These are, are Jews. They're trying to follow God. They're trying to you know, keep up with the law, keep up with those systems. As soon as Jesus says, no, 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 you've missed the point. It's me. You've got to focus on me. Then the grumbling starts because he's breaking their worldview. And we are no different. We do the exact same thing. As soon as the Bible says something, and you can, you can pick your issue. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's marriage. Whatever it is. It's all easy until what we think is right 
and wrong runs up against the word of God. And we see this all the time. What has happened? First people grumble, then they argue, then they leave. And they leave in droves. And we see this. So then Jesus, in verse 61, he asks the question, what about you? Are you going to leave also? And Peter says what? He says, where else would we go, Father? You have the words of life. Where would we go? To whom would we go? And that's the right answer. Right? When we come up against things that, that rub us the wrong way, that stick on our craw, that we don't like, that's the right answer, is to say, whom would we go to? You have the words of life. You are the bread of life. So our last note, our closing. I would be neglectful if, uh, if I didn't touch on this. I'm going to talk about communion, and this is really neither here nor there, but I, it's important that, that you know. Because if we were to look at um, the, the Catholics or the, the Evangelicals, they, they, or not the Evangelicals, um, uh, the Episcopals, they, they believe differently about communion than we do, or how I practice communion. You should form your own opinion, not take mine. And remember the problem. Remember the problem we were talking about earlier, that either not everyone is called, or everyone is called and not everyone responds to the call. Right? Well, that's, that's the division that, w- that we were making. This is the workaround. And we have to kind of go through a, a chain of logic to get there. When we talk about, it, it comes down to communion and the difference about how I do communion, how we celebrate communion here versus how you would do it if you were at a Catholic church. And you've probably heard this said this way, um, but I want to make sure that we articulate it so that you understand the difference. Remember that Remember Pentecost. Remember what happens at Pentecost. If you go there, remember that the fire comes down and, and touches the, the people that are there. That's a direct parallel to when Solomon is blessing, their, when they're uh, dedicating the temple and the fire of God comes down and fills the temple. There's a direct parallel there. So if you take that and you say, okay, well, the people that were present there were blessed with the Holy Spirit, then they can pass that on to the priestly line. And that's what they do is they say, okay, well, we established a new priestly line. So when you think about, you know, a, a bishop or a priest, they are blessed in the priestly line. That's what they believe, is that they have that power of the Holy Spirit. And you can read it in the Bible, it says, what you bless, I will bless, and what you curse, I will curse. If you take that, then you can say things. You can say things like, I can bless water, and it becomes holy water. I can bless bread and wine, and it becomes the blood and the flesh of Jesus. Do you see how we got there? Does that, that make sense to everyone? Say, well, wait a minute, what does this have to do with the getting over the who's called and who's not called? It comes down to, to baptism. Why do they put such emphasis on baptism? You can baptize a baby. Well, a baby isn't making a decision for Christ, but if you believe that a priest has the power of the Holy Spirit and can move you, can execute God's call to move you from dead to life in second rebirth in baptism, then it doesn't matter. Your position, your decision doesn't matter. What matters is the power of the priest with the Holy Spirit doing the baptism. Whereas we go, well, if you're baptizing, you're giving us an outward sign. You're saying what's already in your heart. That's how we talk about baptism, is that that's your first step on your journey, is declaring to all of us by being baptized that you have taken Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Instead, they're saying, no, no, no. This is the work of God and the priest moving you from dead to life. Now, once you're baptized... Now you can choose. Now you can choose whether to be saved or not to be saved. Before, you didn't have a choice. Until God's holy fire came down on you through the priest, through baptism, you didn't have that choice. And there's a solid argument in Scripture to be made for that. 
Because you are dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins, until you are baptized by an ordained priest. That's what they said, with the power of redemption. And believe, you have to ignore the thief on the cross or believe that he was a Jew under the law. You have, to, you have to cut a few things out to get there. But you can see, though, why, if you believe that, baptizing babies is important. There's no act of free will to move from dead to life. It is the power of God moving through the priestly line. Now you have moved from dead to life and can choose salvation. Before, you didn't have a choice. Now you have free will, and you move back and forth between righteous and unrighteous. That's what they think, is as you're moving through your life, there's going to be times. Maybe you had a rough week. Maybe it was full of sin. So you move to the, to the unrighteous side. Maybe you did right all week long, right? You're still on the, the righteous side. But you can see why, if you have confession, right? And say a few Our Fathers or a few Hail Marys, you can then get back to the righteous side and then take communion. And they take this verse, this John 6, 53 through 56, where it says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They take that to say, well, unless you do this, right, then you, you aren't saved. Does that make sense to everybody? So that's where they're getting that from. And so they say, well, how do we get the, the, the flesh and the blood? Well, clearly we have, to bre- we have to bless, right? The priestly line with the power of the Holy Spirit has to bless the elements for you to be able to do that. That's why they do it. And that is why, you know, so when they bless the bread and the wine, it literally becomes the blood and the flesh of Christ, which are essential to salvation. Now, in comparison, when I do it, we do it as a remembrance, as a memorial. So if we were to flip in your book uh, to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, this is what I read to you. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But notice the difference, right? Remembrance, proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes, versus unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. That's the difference. And it, like I said, it's neither here nor there. It really doesn't have much application. But you should know that's where we're coming from when we talk about communion. So here in a couple weeks when we take communion, we were just talking about making sure that that's an act of worship for you. Think about what that means, what it means for you and what you believe about it. All right? I, I know that might create more questions than it, than it answers, but... Um, like I said, the whole point of this was to renew your devotion, was to renew your, your spirit, your idea for the Holy Word, that you would be afresh with the gospel in your mind, that you would be recommitted to those elements of, of why we come here to church, why we meet together, all of those pieces. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, cannot help but think of all of the people who uh, woke up 20, 20 years ago on this day to empty beds or empty homes or to unknown whether or not their loved ones were going to come home to all of our firefighters and, and, and police and, and EMS personnel that went to ground zero day after day after day, month after month after month 
doing the hard work of, of cleaning up and, and cataloging and, and analyzing and detective work and all of the, the federal agents that investigated and poured over hours of surveillance tape to, to find the perpetrators to track down what had happened and why it happened and who did what. Father, you, you put us here for a reason at this time for a reason. Father, we think about those souls and we don't know the fate of all of them. I'm sure some of them are, are dancing with you and I'm also quite sure that there's some of them that are not. Father, please renew our hearts that as we go out of here today that we would know that time is short, that tomorrow isn't guaranteed, that there truly is evil in this world. Father, please speak loudly to us, shine brightly for us. Please forgive us for our sins and renew a spirit within us that we would seek you, that we would be devoted to you. Please help us to have the courage and the whatever it takes to proclaim you to this world and to help those around us. Father, I, I cannot help but feel like there's some kind of weight hanging out over, over Fruta that there's a bunch of people who are in need that we don't know about. Father, please show them to us. Please help us see them. Please help us reach them. Please help us provide for them in whatever they need. Please, Lord, give us the courage to speak your word. Please give us the kindness and love to build relationships with everyone that we meet. Father, we ask all of this in the loving name of your Son, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's tons of sweet potatoes next door.